to give you a couple quick examples of what those might be. One is a statement that Jesus makes in John chapter 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I love that relational picture of Jesus, that he's the shepherd, that he's with us, that he walks with us, that he directs us, that he provides for us, and that all that he does is good. He truly is a good shepherd from beginning to end. I love that picture, and it's a very warm, comforting truth to which I return. Another one is John 15, 11, where Jesus, again, is speaking to his disciples, and he talks of joy. And he says that these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I love that. I love the fact that Jesus wants his followers to be filled with joy. And it's not just a little bit of joy. He wants us to have his joy. Jesus-sized joy. Infinite joy. Eternal joy. Those are just a couple quick examples of Jesus' statements to which I return regularly and drink from deeply. Then there are other statements that Jesus makes that in all honesty I'm less fond of. (laughs) Not that I doubt their truthfulness at all, but I find them more challenging at the level of my will. Two quick examples. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That in all honesty, friends, is not my default mode. I don't get excited when I read that. And Mark 8 is another statement of his that is incredibly powerful. And yet, there's something inside me that it, it, it rubs against me. Jesus said, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's an invitation to die. Repeatedly. To die to self. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't regularly wake up in the morning and raise my hand and say, yes, it's another day when I get to die to self. But that's the invitation. And this morning, we're going to take a look at a text that has probably both kinds of statements embedded in it. Statements that will make us want to raise our hands and shout for joy and say, yes, I love that. And there will be statements in here, too, that make us uncomfortable. You say, really? Our text is Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. And to set the stage for this text, Peter comes to Jesus and he He asks a question about forgiveness. Starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? 
And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, Peter asks a question, why? It's because Jesus had been giving instruction to his disciples, his followers, about this whole concept of forgiveness. In verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So the immediate context is forgiving somebody. Now, Peter is probably like most of us. All right, well, I kind of get that, that I got to forgive, but how many times? Look, a lot of us like black and white. Make this really clear to me how many times I have to do this. So that's what Peter wants clarification on. What's the limit? Up to seven times? He throws a number out there. And it's a magnanimous number. Seven times. It's magnanimous because the Jewish rabbinic teaching was that they were required to forgive somebody three times. The teaching was this, that if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time he is not. The idea being that if somebody had to ask more than three times for forgiveness, they probably weren't real genuine, so you don't have to go there. That's the teaching that Peter knew. Now, Peter had obviously learned something from Jesus because he more than doubles the, the typical Jewish teaching. He says seven. Good job. Learn something. But he's got a long way to go. Because Jesus doesn't commend him for the answer. Yeah, you got the right number. That's good. Jesus says 70 times 7. Now, your Bible may say 77 times, and, and translators vary on this. Which is the correct translation? 77 or 70 times 7? Doesn't really matter because the point is clear enough. There is no upper limit to forgiveness, it's unlimited, Jesus says. Now, one of the things we don't get in reading the biblical text are facial expressions. I'd love to know what Peter's face looked like when Jesus says 70 times 7. Really? That many times? You're not serious, Jesus. And this is the first point of discomfort for me in this text. Because in all honesty, I like limits to forgiveness. Otherwise, it does feel like I'm being taken advantage of. But Jesus says, forgive repeatedly with no upper limit. That's tough. Philip Yancey is a well-known author, and he, he writes very honestly and when writing about forgiveness, he, he just expresses what a lot of us think. Philip Yancey says, forgiveness is achingly difficult. Forgiveness is an unnatural act. And the very taste of forgiveness seems somehow wrong. It's unnatural, he says. It is for me in my flesh. And if you don't think that's true... 
go hang out on a playground at a school sometimes. Oh, I'm sorry I did that to you. Please forgive me. Teachers probably don't hear that very often because that's not our natural M.O. And as adults, we just play sophisticated games of unforgiveness as well. But Jesus goes on and he responds to Peter to explain not only why unlimited forgiveness is required, but why it's possible and why it should be a natural act for his followers. And he does this by means of a parable. And a parable is a story that makes a comparison and it shows us usually what life in the kingdom of God is like. If you're part of God's family, this is what it's like. This is what it looks like, and this is the behavior that's expected. And this parable plays out in three scenes, and we're going to take this scene by scene, and I'm not going to stop and elaborate on the, the meaning as we go through each scene. We'll do that at the end. I just kind of want to work through this and initially explain what's going on. So scene one is in verses 23 through 27. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owned him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So in, in this scene, we get introduced to the two primary characters in our story, a king and a servant, or a slave. Uh, there are different translations. Some say servant, some say slave. I actually think servant is a better term. S a slave uh, is, we may think of somebody who's working in a field. Slaves and uh, chains and indentured servants. A servant, though, in this case, is probably a royal official, a palace official. So the king would have different departments in his kingdom, and he would place people over those departments. And they would have certain monetary resources at their disposal. And from time to time, the king would demand an accounting of their funds. How are they doing? And that's what's happening here. So he calls one of his servants and demands to know, wants to see the accounting ledgers. And the man owes him this sum of 10,000 talents. Now, in American culture, we don't use talents. So how much is that? In this story, we'll come across two units of currency. One is a denarius. And a denarius is, is, it was a typical day's wage in that culture. Work a day, earn a denarius. The talent was the largest unit of currency. And one talent was probably equal to about 6,000 denarii. So one talent was about 6,000 days' wages. This servant owed not one talent, but 10,000 talents to the king. Now do the math. 
If you take 10,000 talents times 6,000 denarii, you come up with a nice tidy figure of 60 million denarii. 60 million days wages this servant owed to the king. Now, just out of curiosity, I was wondering, how many years would that be to pay off? So if somebody worked 310 days a year, it would take about 193,000 years to pay off that debt. That's a debt that'll mess up a credit score, friends. <clears throat> 60 million days wages. Now, the text doesn't tell us how in the world did this guy accumulate such a debt. It only explains that there is a debt. It doesn't really matter how, we, how he got to be so indebted. The point was he had a debt that he could never begin to repay, ever. Now, you can imagine the response of the king at this point. He's not real happy. So he orders orders the servant and his family to be sold. Now, in that day, in that culture, creditors could sell both the debtor and their immediate family, wife and children, to help pay off the debts. There was also a debtor's prison where the king could put debtors and that would apparently be motivation for other family members or friends to raise money to help pay the debt. So the king orders this guy to be sold, along with his family. Now the debtor is not real pleased with that turn of events either. So he does the only thing that he can. He pleads for mercy. Notice verses 26 and 27. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And notice the response of the king. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. So the servant pleads, and it's interesting that he doesn't come before the king and say, hey, would you just forgive all this debt? He knows that's not going to happen. At least that's what he thinks. So he makes this ludicrous statement, give me enough time and I'll repay it. 60 million days wages, I'll repay it. That's good. But notice the heart of the king. Notice how he's described. The king, in his compassion, absorbed that debt and released him unconditionally and forgave that massive sum. So the debtor walks away free and forgiven. Scene two is in verses 28 to 30. But that slave, the one who was just forgiven, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. 
So the first servant, the one who has just forgiven this huge debt, walks out and seemingly fairly quickly finds another servant, probably a colleague, somebody on par with him, maybe another palace official. He owed him the sum, 100 denarii. It's not an insignificant amount of money, three to four months' wages, but certainly a paltry amount compared to the 60 million days' wages that this guy had just been forgiven. So the first servant grabs the second guy by the throat and demands repayment. And then the second servant takes the same approach that the first one did with the king. He fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. A debt that could be easily repaid. And notice that the words are almost identical to what the first servant said to the king. And while the plea was in essence the same, the response was very different. Whereas the first servant was shown compassion and was forgiven, he threw the second servant into prison. And what Jesus is depicting is a picture of somebody who had at some level received forgiveness but that forgiveness had not transformed his heart and his life so that he would forgive others. It's a forgiven yet unforgiving individual. Height of ingratitude. Scene three is in verses 31 to 35. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So the good news for the first servant is that there were probably no body cams during that day, no security cameras, but either other servants saw what went down or certainly it didn't take long to figure out what transpired. And they didn't like it. So they went and they told the king. And the king summons that first servant, the one whom he had forgiven. And he upbraids him. And summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy you. And the point is very clear. In the same way that I have forgiven you, you should pay that forward and do something similar with others. But because that first servant failed to do that, he was imprisoned and tortured. And in prisons, there were torturers 
Guys whose job was to prevent escape, but they would also inflict punishment. Notice the response of the king. The same king who was moved to compassion to the extent that he gave this mountainous-sized debt. The same king who is now moved to anger and is willing to punish. It's not schizophrenia. It's not two people. It's a reaction of the same king responding out of righteous judgment. Now, Jesus doesn't always give a word of explanation at the end of his parables, but he does here, and we find it in verse 35, where Jesus says that my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And this is where this parable gets really uncomfortable. For me. Because this is not the nice, nice, gentle Jesus that many of us have in mind. So what is he saying? And what is he not saying? Well, let's try to put this together and explain what's going on here. In many ways, this is a pretty easy parable to understand. The king in the parable obviously represents God some way represents who he is and how God responds. The servant is a disciple, a follower. Jesus has been clarifying the behavior that is expected of one of his followers. And then there's the issue of the debt. 10,000 talents. And this is something that has meaning to every individual who has ever lived, and it has meaning to every one of us here in this room. Because we need to recognize that just as the first servant in this story had a, a massive debt that he had no hope of repaying, so do we. A debt that is far larger, far more egregious, than we could ever imagine, and it's all due to our sin. And so often, people say and acknowledge the fact that, yeah, God is, but, you know, really, I'm a pretty good person. And I'll do enough, enough good, so that God will forgive me. But it's like a, a servant, this first servant, having a debt of 60 million days' wages and trying to pay it off in one lifetime. It's never going to happen. And our debt before God, due to our sin, is far larger than we probably want to admit. We're going through a book together as a staff. Pastor Stan was the one who recommended this. It's a book by Timothy Keller called Center Church, and he talks about the gospel. And Keller has this amazing way of making short statements that, that pack a punch. And when describing the gospel, he has the good news or the bad news and then the good news. So let me give you his version of the bad news. Timothy Keller says that part of what we need to recognize is that we are far more sinful and flawed than we dare believe. 
And one of the necessary points of recognition for people in order to find life and freedom in Christ is to recognize the truth of that statement. That I am way more sinful, way more messed up, way more flawed than I want to even acknowledge. What is the truth? And Jesus offers life. But part of coming to life is to first recognize the truth of that, our sin and our debt. That's the bad news. The reality that each of us has this debt that is far larger than any one of us could begin to repay. No amount of work, no amount of effort is going to suffice. There's good news in this parable, too. And we see it in the compassion of the king. See, it was all because of the compassion of the king that he was willing to release that 10,000-talent debt. And he absorbed that. That cost the king something. It cost him a lot. And he absorbed it. In the same way, God loves to forgive and welcome sinners home. And that is the invitation that is always out there to every individual. I welcome you home. You can come home. But part of recognizing that we need to go home, we need to recognize that on our own we're a mess. And this is the flip side of Timothy Keller's perspective on the gospel. The bad news was we're way more sinful and flawed than we dared believe. The good news, though, is that we are far more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. That's the good news depicted by the king in the parable. That God loves us and accepts us. And he paid the debt through Jesus, it cost him a massive amount. And we can seek forgiveness, but we got to come home. And if we recognize, properly recognize the extent of the debt that has been forgiven us, we will be quick to forgive others. Because the debt they have towards us is minuscule by comparison. Let me clarify, too, that this parable is not saying that if somebody forgives another person, that they therefore earn forgiveness with God. Okay, the parable is not going in that direction. It doesn't flow from humanity up to God. It all starts with God, the king. His forgiveness, and our forgiveness flows from that. The message of the parable, the message of the Bible as a whole, that salvation is simply a gift offered freely by God, and we receive it by grace and grace alone. Forgiveness results because of the fact that we are forgiven, and we're forgiven a far larger amount than we could ever forgive others. So the question is, 
How much has Christ's salvation, forgiveness, transformed our hearts and our lives? See, if the reality of his forgiveness is experienced in our lives, it will be so more natural to forgive others. When, though, there is still pride and a desire for revenge, it shows that his forgiveness has not fully permeated our hearts. And the Bible makes it very clear that the real condition of our heart is often seen in the way we treat others. And forgiveness is one of those powerful ways. In your bulletin, there is an insert. And on one side, it's labeled Steps to Forgiveness. This is taken from a, a book, Victory Over the Darkness, by Neil Anderson. Neil is a prolific author. And in this book, Victory Over the Darkness, he outlines some steps to forgiveness. What are some practical ways that we can that we can take to actually work through this process to release others, to let them off our hook? So we have this in your bulletin simply as a resource, a tool for you to take home. But if you're struggling to release somebody, these may be some helpful steps. Mia close out with a three other comments here. One, on this parable, Jesus is not saying that if there is a Christian who is struggling to forgive somebody that they lose their salvation or are not saved. That's not the point of the parable. It is a reality, though, that if we do not forgive somebody, that we will be the ones who end up in prison. Marcel was telling me after the first service that the number one reason people fail or struggle to forgive, they want the other person to suffer. Guess who ends up suffering most? Neil Anderson, same author, has done years of counseling with people, and it, he, he writes that in his experience, the number one way that Satan gains influence in people's lives, Christians included, is unforgiveness. And it's evidenced by bitterness and anger that ties us up inside. And that bitterness and anger will enslave our hearts if we do not release it. Now, if you don't believe Neil Anderson, believe the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about this these realities of bitterness and anger versus forgiveness. In Ephesians 4.31, Paul's talking about behaviors that are not fitting for a child of God, somebody who has, been, has found new life in him. Notice what Paul says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Pretty nasty list of things. He says, these do not belong in the life of a child of Christ. But he goes on to explain how we should behave. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, 
just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, bitterness and anger and forgiveness cannot coexist. They don't do it easily. If we want to be freed from that, forgiveness is a necessary step. And we forgive because Christ has forgiven us. A couple other quick thoughts on forgiveness as we conclude. To forgive is to forget. I hear that a lot. It's a catchy phrase. Fits nicely on a bumper sticker. It's not true. To forgive does not necessarily mean we got to forget. It's not true with God. God is all-knowing. And when he forgives, it doesn't mean he wipes out our sin from his memory bank. What he does is he separates our sin from us as far as from the east is to the west. He separates himself from our sin and he doesn't bring it back up. So he doesn't remind me, Ryan, on Thursday this week, you did this and this and this and this and this. It was all sin. It was all wrong. And I'm not even going to mention what happened on Friday because the list is even longer. He forgives and he takes the hurt upon himself in Jesus at the cross. And we're exhorted to do something similar. When we forgive, it doesn't mean we blot out that memory from our banks. It does mean that we make the conscious decision to live with the hurt and the pain that people have done toward us. And the pain may remain but it means we don't bring it up and throw it back at them and use it against them. We release that person off our hook and we put them into God's hands instead. And one final comment, what I will call the from and the to of forgiveness. Very often when we think about forgiveness, we rejoice in the fact that we have been released from something. Ooh, I've been released from the guilt, so I don't feel as badly. Or, ooh, that penalty has been taken away from me. I feel good about that. And those are good things, and we should celebrate those. But it's not the penultimate thing with forgiveness. The ultimate reason to forgive is restoration and reconciliation too. And Timothy Keller does a fabulous job at explaining how sin results in separation relationally. First, from God. Secondly, there is sin that separates us from one another. It creates tension in relationships. But sin even causes separation within ourselves. Psychologically, we become somewhat divided. But forgiveness results in the two of restoration and reconciliation. And ultimately, we need restoration and reconciliation with God. And that's why John Piper, well-known pastor and author, could say that the goal of God is the goal of forgiveness. We're ultimately restored to him. Restoration because God is compassion who desires relationship with us. 
the one who welcomes sinners home. That is the goal of forgiveness. And that is the invitation. First, to recognize the reality that before God, we have a massive debt that could never begin to be repaid. And if you have never come to Christ for the forgiveness of your debt, know that that is his heart's desire. He wants to run to you. But part of it is wanting to come home. And if you have never made that step, we would love to have a conversation with you today if you would like to talk about that. After the service, I'll be up front. Pastor Rob will be here. Put Pastor Rob's wife Karen on the spot too. My wife Jill will be up here for the gals. God wants to be restored to you. There will be others up here too. If you're struggling to forgive somebody, God wants for you to be released from the chains of anger and bitterness. And if that's a struggle and it would be helpful to pray with somebody, we would love to engage that conversation with you again. God is the God of compassion who welcomes sinners home. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you welcome so freely those of us, every one of us, who has this debt that can never be repaid. Thank you that in Jesus you paid that debt. You died for us. And because of that, we can come home. And Lord, for, for any here who are struggling, either to come to you or to release others. Father, I pray that you would give courage to make those necessary, albeit painful steps, to find freedom and joy and peace and love and grace in you. Thank you that you exhibit that so clearly in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, whose name we pray. Amen.